0: Well, here we go. Welcome to this hour of the program, folks. Rob Regenridge with you here on this Wednesday afternoon, 403-974-8255 is the way to reach us. We'll get back to your phone calls. Right now, they want to talk about what's going on in Ukraine. And on the ground, we're certainly seeing encouraging signs of Ukrainian progress and the very real prospect of a Ukrainian victory over the Russian invaders. But lurking over all of that are the threats from Vladimir Putin about the use of nuclear weapons. Vladimir Putin is losing. Vladimir Putin is being humiliated in the process. Vladimir Putin is desperate and dangerous. When he starts talking about the use of nuclear weapons, it is something we should take seriously. At the same time, however, uh, this is not a threat that should ever be rewarded. Obviously, there are a number of countries uh, that possess nuclear weapons. Not many, but there are others. The idea that they can use the threat of those weapons to make territorial demands against their neighbors is obviously something where we need to draw the line. This kind of nuclear blackmail should never be rewarded lest we have to live with it on a constant basis. Vladimir Putin should not be rewarded uh, for those kinds of threats. But at the same time, we do need to take the threat seriously. So how do we need to respond? We as Canada, we as the West, we as NATO. Joining us uh, for some thoughts on some of these big questions, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Carrie Buck, who's a senior fellow with the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa, former Canadian ambassador to NATO. Uh, Carrie, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Obviously, a lot of this is unprecedented, but but certainly this kind of talk, these these kinds of threats, is not something we've we've dealt with maybe ever, but literally in, in decades for sure. Uh, your thoughts on on just the unprecedented nature of this path we're going down here, first of all?
1: Well, there have been in the past few years more leaders who've uh decided to threaten uh, nuclear use more certainly than threatened it during the uh latter part of the cold war so for instance uh President Trump uh, threatened um, North Korea with fire and fury like the world has never seen. It sounds a lot like Putin's threat, right? Mm-hmm. And that was followed by a period where the North Korean and American leaders traded barbs about whose nuclear button was bigger. So leaders have gone there, and Putin's gone there since 2014. He has threatened or referred to Russia's nuclear arsenal. But what happened last week was unprecedented, because what he did is he lowered the threshold for use by Russia, Um, and I won't get into all the technical stuff about Russian nuclear doctrine, but basically he said um, if any Russian territories are attacked, even those that he declared, uh, Ukrainian territories that he declared annexed by Russia, even those that they don't completely control. So he set it up so there was a lower threshold for the use of tactical nuclear weapons. Doesn't mean he's going to use them, but the threat was a lot more clear and a lot more menacing than we've seen in recent years.
0: Right. And obviously there's there's significant worry around this clearly given the stakes and, and how serious Putin might be. And on the other hand though, there is the real worry, uh, that if we concede to what is, is tantamount to nuclear blackmail, then then we're opening a different kind of Pandora's box, aren't we?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's the risk. And um I I personally my I don't think that it would be smart at all for the world to give in to that nuclear blackmail. That being said, the world has to be very careful, watch very carefully, and prepare. So there's a lot of things. I set this out in my Globe piece, a lot of things that um, NATO allies and other countries will be doing right now to try and prevent any nuclear use and try and send a clear message to the Russian leader that uh, if he crosses that line that's been in place since 1945, that he will face very severe consequences.
0: Right. And and maybe traditional approaches of deterrence aren't necessarily applicable here, as you note in your piece, that that sort of all rests on the assumption that the other side is acting rationally. That may not be the case in this instance.
1: Well, I mean, whether he's rational or not, I think he works according to his own rational uh, rationality mm-hmm. in a way, but he's a leader who has surrounded himself with people who won't tell him the truth. They'll tell him what he wants to hear. He's finally realized that he's losing in Ukraine, and that makes him more uh, unpredictable. Um, So whether it's rational or not, I'm not sure if traditional nuclear deterrence will work, but it's clear that NATO allies are continuing to do that. Um, So uh, they'll run a nuclear deterrence exercise shortly. NATO defense ministers are meeting today and tomorrow, and they're going to meet in the nuclear planning group. So nuclear deterrence, they are definitely putting up that flag out of NATO, but they're doing other things as well. Um, right. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and you talk about the steps and, and, you know, obviously the first step is to to further isolate and, and deter and dissuade Russia uh, through whatever means we have right now. We've heard those public messages from from U.S. leadership about, you know, grave consequences if, if Russia goes down this path. Um, what, what more needs to be done on that side?
1: Well, okay, so the G7 leaders met yesterday, and they issued a statement and said that Russia would face severe consequences if there's any use of weapons of mass destruction. So that also includes chemical, uh, biological, and other weapons. There's a chance that he might consider using chemical weapons as well. They certainly have helped, aided, and abetted their use in Syria. So, um, so that message came from G7 leaders. The message is coming from NATO defense ministers today, and that'll be consistent. Um, and that's an important signal. But more important is the signals coming from other nuclear powers who have been more traditionally friendly to Russia, like China and India. And China is starting to distance itself slightly from Russia. And it appears that they have delivered some private messages to Russia saying, uh, don't cross that line. Uh, It's not in China's interest to have that taboo broken.
0: Well, and and that could prove to be important here, right? I mean, if, you know, if if Putin is is short of allies and is becoming more reliant or dependent on countries like China, that, that kind of message could be impactful, perhaps.
1: Right. And there's other room in san- sanctions. I mean, the sanctions have been pretty severe, pretty far reaching. But there's more room to do what I call shock and awe sanctions that really, really could uh, cripple Russia. Um, and so he has to know that that's waiting. Um, and um Beyond the sanctions, though, as I said, uh, I think the most compelling message is uh, that there will be severe conventional consequences. and you saw General Petraeus uh, projecting some of that yeah. in the, I think it was The Guardian last week saying, you know the u s could take out the um, uh, part of the maritime fleet of the Russians, and they would take out ground forces, etc. So, pretty clear messages that there'd be a huge price to pay, and Putin has to be thinking about the impact on his leadership if he is seen to be losing that badly.
0: Well, and, and further to the point about rewarding Russia for this, I mean, it's, it's possible this conflict is going to get to a point where maybe there's an opening for some negotiation, an attempt to, to bring about some peace here. Obviously, it's important that we support Ukraine, and, and Ukraine appears to be making considerable progress at the moment. But you know, where's, where's that balance in terms of, OK, how do we resolve this conflict versus not rewarding this kind of nuclear blackmail that we talked about?
1: Well, choosing when negotiations start is a very, very difficult thing. And there are a lot of factors that have to be balanced, as you said. So the challenge for President Zelensky is that with the atrocities that Russia has committed in Ukraine, the horrible war crimes You know, his capacity and perhaps his incentive to sit down at a negotiating table is pretty slim. He said he'll negotiate once Putin is no longer in power and once the annexed territories, including Crimea, are back in Ukrainian hands. Now, that's a position he's taking right now. Perhaps sometime down the road, he will uh, be at a point where it makes sense to sit down and negotiate, but I don't think that is the we're at that place right now um it's important that uh ukrainian have more territory ukraine has more territorial gains i think in that area in the donbass and close to crimea um and there will be views of others too i mean the position that putin's put on the table right now is pretty maximalist as well he's saying you know we'll freeze the conflict where it is now because i'm losing (laughs) so we'll freeze it where it is now and you come to the negotiating table and it's not good faith
0: no not at all well some important days ahead we'll leave it there for now carrie buck appreciate the insight and thank you so much make some time for us here this afternoon
1: thanks very much happy to do so
0: All right, take care. There you go. That's Kerry Buxton, your fellow at the Graduate School of Public International Affairs, University of Ottawa, former Canadian ambassador to NATO. Uh, Now, meanwhile, the prime minister was asked today about government support for Ukraine, and certainly this government has been criticized, fairly criticized, uh, for maybe falling short. But here's what uh, the prime minister had to say today. Canada was specifically asked to provide more armored vehicles and artillery over and above what has
2: already been committed. Why was that request ignored?
3: Um, I was happy to speak with President Zelensky two days ago, and I spoke, heard uh, from him directly yesterday when he spoke to us uh, at a, an extraordinary G7 uh, leaders meeting. Um, we've continued to be there uh, for uh, the Ukrainians uh, as they defend not just their own territory, but the principles that underpin our, con- our, our democracies. Um, that's why I'm very pleased that Minister Annan today making a 47 million dollar announcement on top of the millions upon millions upon millions of dollars in support we've sent already militarily, including for artillery ammunition, winter coats, drone cameras, we're in the process of sending over more armoured vehicles. We will continue to be there with the equipment that Ukraine needs uh, to continue to push back against uh, Russia's illegal and illegitimate invasion.
0: Well, let's hope that's the case, uh, because they certainly need it right now. Remember the movie Armageddon? It was an asteroid on its way toward uh, the planet Earth, and, you know, it was going to kill everybody, so they had to stop it. So they got the idea of blowing it up. So instead of training astronauts to be drillers, they got a bunch of oil well drillers and trained them to be astronauts. A little implausible, but it all worked out in the end. Uh, But as it turns out, blowing up an asteroid is not the best way to deal with an asteroid. But that's not to say that we're helpless if an asteroid is on its way here. We're not like the dinosaurs. They were kind of oblivious to the whole thing until that big rock slammed into the planet uh, that fateful day. Uh, Us, on the other hand, we've got some tools at our disposal, as it turns out. So this was the whole point of the Dart mission, NASA's dark mission. Uh, that if we basically aimed a spacecraft at an asteroid, not to blow it up, but to change its orbit, could we do that? Is that one way of protecting our planet? And so some really encouraging results now. We saw the crash. We know that the spacecraft made it to this particular asteroid, which was a test run. This asteroid wasn't coming at us. So we know that part worked, but did it actually change the orbit? Because if it didn't, then it's all a moot point. Uh, NASA Chief Bill Nelson yesterday confirming that it did do as intended.
4: NASA confirms that DART successfully changed the targeted asteroid's trajectory. Now, how do we know that? Astronomers have been using telescopes on Earth to measure how much that time has changed. And now the team has confirmed that the spacecraft's impact altered dimorphous orbit around Didymos by 32 minutes, and therefore successfully moved its trajectory. In other words, DART shortened the 11 hour and 55 minute orbit to 11 hours and 23 minutes. And it moved it in another location. Uh, it was expected to be a huge success if it only slowed the orbit by about 10 minutes. But it actually slowed it by 32 minutes. Okay, so when we talk about slowing the orbit, that's where it's
0: key. But to understand you know, the nature of asteroids and what we might need to do to ensure that one that could hit us doesn't. Well, joining us for some further thoughts on the significance of all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, one of Canada's foremost experts on asteroids. Uh, Paul Wigert uh, is an expert at uh, Western University, also a professor in the Department of Astronomy and Physics at Western. He joins us uh, on the line here this afternoon. Dr. Wiegert. great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
2: Not at all. Good to be here. All right. Well, I don't know if it's necessarily
0: surprising that uh, this, this change in orbit was confirmed, but it's obviously hugely significant. Let me get your thoughts, first of all.
2: Yes. Uh, so the mission was successful. Uh, that's great to know. We were not quite sure exactly how much effect it would have. So it's nice to be able to confirm here within sort of two weeks of the impact that there has been quite a measurable change to the orbit of the target asteroid.
0: Help us understand the significance of this, not being just able to, to track one of these uh, asteroids, to, to send a spacecraft in its direction, but actually the ability to alter its orbit. I mean, that, that's pretty big.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's something that we, you know, as a race have never tried before uh, to do deliberately. So this means that we now have a little bit more information on how we might go about deflecting a potentially threatening asteroid in the future.
0: Which we appear to have done. So not only did we, we impact the orbit, we seem to have uh, affected the time of its orbit. So what does it mean when we say we've, we've changed its orbit?
2: Yeah, so the the asteroid that was the target of the Dart mission is called Dimorphos, and it is actually in orbit around a larger asteroid which is nearby. So it travels in a circular orbit around uh, Didymos, and so the impact struck this, what's which, which essentially uh, you know the moon of this larger asteroid, and it changed the amount of time it takes to go all the way around it, and so it's this change. In the orbit around the larger asteroid, which we're using to determine how effective the impact actually was.
0: Right, because, you know, it's important to understand the nature of asteroids. They they do travel in orbits, maybe thanks to, to movies or whatever. We sort of think of them as, you know, barreling toward us in a straight line. But I guess if we were worried about a, a potential asteroid threat, that would be the part we would need to understand. What is its orbit? How does that interact or potentially overlap with our own orbit, right?
2: Yes, exactly. So everybody knows the planets go around the sun, but asteroids go around the sun in much the same way. The potential risk from asteroids is that their paths around the sun could intersect with the Planet, uh, with the path of a planet like the earth and so we need to understand how they're traveling around the sun and if necessary give them a little nudge so that their path no longer intersects with our planet should that situation ever arise
0: right which is a way of, of protecting earth i mean you know we we think of these dramatic interventions like blowing up an asteroid but uh that that would obviously be quite difficult but perhaps unnecessary then
2: Well, yes. So, I mean, you know, one could imagine trying to, as you say, blow up an asteroid, but that actually takes quite a bit more energy. It's quite, you know, it's just more difficult to do. We're better off if we can simply deflect the asteroid so it's no longer a threat. And the DART mission shows that that, you know, might in fact be possible.
0: Now, we may need to act more quickly in the future if threats arise. Obviously, we may need to take on a a much bigger asteroid than this one. Uh, But what are the lessons we can now apply moving forward here?
2: Well, one of the most, I mean, the most important lesson is that this can, in fact, work. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was a relatively small-scale test, and, you know, it's possible that should you know, a threatening asteroid present itself in the future, we would have to push it more than the DART spacecraft itself was able to do. So this is a proof of concept, but it doesn't mean that we now have, you know, everything we need to deflect any potential future asteroid. Um, So, you know, work will need to continue here, but the, the significant result is that it worked. And so hopefully we can scale this up to the size that we need uh, to face any potential future threats,
0: yeah, and step one is identifying those threats, and that 's the challenge. I mean, when it comes to really large asteroids that pose an existential threat, maybe those are easier to to spot and to track, but there are those smaller ones that are more difficult to spot that could still do a lot of damage. so where are we at in terms of identifying, recognizing tracking potential threats
2: yeah, so uh, you 've hit it right on the nose there the the key to, yeah, you know, asteroid safety is really to identify all the potentially threatening asteroids as soon as possible so that we can know, well, A, whether they pose any danger and, and B, know about it far enough in advance that it's uh, relatively easy to do anything. So astronomers have been working on this for decades now. And the good news is is that uh, the largest, um, most dangerous asteroids are thought to be largely and cataloged at the, you know, above the 90% level. So, the, you know, the, the asteroids that we think of as, you know, potentially contributing to the extinction of the dinosaurs have, you know, well, most of them, and we can't say all of them because you're never quite sure if you've, you've found them all, but they're, we're we're quite confident that we have most of those um, already catalogued, and they 're all safe, which is what we want to hear. but then, as we get down to the smaller sizes they 're necessarily harder to see, harder to observe they're they 're faint, and so, as we get down to smaller sizes, but ones which are still potentially dangerous to our planet, the catalog sort of hovers around fifty percent or, or maybe less as we get down to smaller sizes, so we 've certainly made great strides. In identifying and cataloging these asteroids, and all the ones we've found so far are safe, uh, but we don't know where they all are yet. That's That job still remains to be completed.
0: Right, so that remains the important work, but it's a bit of a watershed moment here in, in at least uh, shaping our understanding, right, in knowing what we can do in response to, to this kind of potential threat.
2: Yes, exactly. Before this, we really didn't know what would happen if you crashed something into an asteroid. Of course, you naturally expected it, it might be deflected in the way kind of like it was, but, um, you know, until you've actually tried it, you can't really be sure. So it's great that we now at least have our sort of first information about how this works, and then it goes more or less as was expected. Well, fascinating Uh, indeed. We'll leave it there. Uh, Dr. Wiegert, appreciate
0: your insight on all of this. Thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon.
2: Not at all. Happy to be here.
0: All right, There you go. Uh, one of Canada's foremost experts saw on asteroids, Paul Wigert, at Western University. So the significance of what the DART mission has done, what it has taught us, I guess, about our ability to uh, affect the path of asteroids. So if one was on a trajectory that it was going to collide with Earth, we can't really do much about our own orbit. But if we can change or slow down the orbit of the asteroid, then, then we miss each other, which is the objective, obviously. top in this hour though remember arrive can well the app hasn't gone away uh but it is uh, no longer mandatory for those returning to or traveling to canada and that came after months of pressure on the federal government to drop the, the mandatory aspect of the app or to drop the app altogether now, because the perception that it wasn't really accomplishing anything uh to say nothing of the fact that it was problematic Uh, That there was a real lack of transparency around the app. And as we've now learned, we were spending a lot of money on the app. Uh, So the Globe and Mail revealed last week that spending on the ArriveCan app has topped $54 million, more than double what the government has publicly said has been spent on the app to date. $54 million. That's uh, uh, an insane amount of money uh, on an app like this. And A number of tech, sex- tech experts told the Globe and Mail pretty much the same thing, that a similar app could be built for a fraction of that price. So why are we spending so much? Why have we spent so much on this app? And Why does that seem to uh, contrast significantly from what the federal government is telling us? Globe and Mail analysis of federal contracts found total spending is on pace to exceed $54 million this year, more than double what the government has publicly disclosed. Well, joining us to talk more about uh, some of the issues around ArriveCAN is someone who's written extensively about the issue. uh, Digital and privacy expert Bianca Wiley is a partner at Digital Public and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Bianca, good to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program.
5: Hey, Rob. Great to be here.
0: Uh, What, in your view, has changed now that uh, ArriveCAN is no longer mandatory? I mean, the app still exists. I, I suppose some of the same questions still surround it.
5: Yeah, I mean, for me, there's uh, with any spending, you always look at opportunity cost. And I, I would prefer we'd spend $50 million on, you know, N95 masks and some campaigns around it from mm-hmm. a pandemic perspective. Um, but as far as this issue with the spending goes, um, just to put this in context, I was looking at some research done by Sean Boots and Amanda Clark uh, out of Carlton, And in the last uh, fiscal year, the Fed spent $4.6 billion dollars on IT contracts. Wow. That's a lot. So I'm, always, I'm always happy to talk about the money aspect of it, but I think there is a lot more to get into, but I just want to put this in perspective that um, I think because ArriveCan was so public and it's an app, so you mm-hmm. had it you know, in your hand and you were interacting with it, it's got some scrutiny. But I would, I would welcome the idea that there is a lot more going on at a higher dollar value that we don't get to hear about because we don't see it as directly as this app.
0: Right. And even with this app, I mean, it's not as though there's a specific dollar figure attached to the app. I mean, it seems like to get to the answer, you've got to go through all the federal contracts related to the app. And there's a real lack of transparency there. What does it tell us about you know, federal government practices in this area?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think they roll up into the biggest federal practice, which is a secrecy culture. Mm-hmm. Um, even if this $53 million is defensible, it is unclear to us you know what what uh what this money went toward and i think just a few notes on that i mean one of them is you don't just build technology you also have to uh, maintain it it has to adapt you'll remember that there was a glitch um, so you have to always be on top of it and that's day-to-day work um, we also have to think about the fact that this app was collecting health data location data Um, In terms of uh, people's quarantine plans, it wasn't tracking, but in terms of, you know, uh, sharing with the federal government where you were going to go if you were going to quarantine. Then we have to think about the fact that that involves both, both the Canada Border Services Agency, which is the second largest police force in the country, and the Public Health Agency of Canada. So I think what we need to do is remember, you've got this little app. But it is not standing by itself. There is an immense number of things related to design, regulation, data, where that data goes, how you have to meet in order to talk about how this works in the broader ecosystem. So I think those are some of the things that get erased when you look at something like this and say, oh, I see that code. You know, it should have been cheaper to write it. Well, it's like, okay, but hold on. There's a lot more going on here.
0: Right. And Arrive Cam becomes a flashpoint because, uh, you know, it was mandatory, right?
5: Right. And I think that here is an interesting piece with government, and this gets back to secrecy culture too, but also um, for me, if we're spending $53 million on this, I would much prefer that we spent that money um, so it was being done by the public service. Mm -hmm. In this case, I believe the federal government secured ownership of the code base, which means that it basically transfers. It's not like a commercial product. You go and buy a can off the shelf. Like, that's not what this is. Um, but in that case, we would be investing in our ongoing capacity so that if we want to build stuff like this in future, we have that in-house. And I think that is the major shift that we should be making when we're thinking about $4.6 billion, is why do we have a ton of IT staff But they're not building. They're actually just sort of overseeing contracting or they're involved in some ways. Um, So, you know, there's, there's a different way to shift this. And the last point I want to make about the government and technology is this. It's about the value. The government of Canada may very well believe that it is worth $53 million, that if something this high profile goes wrong, they get to say it wasn't us. Here's who's on the hook. Because there's a defensive sort of liability management and a public relations management once something is this high profile. And that kind of valuation is not the way that we, you know, we hear that number and we think, okay, well, what did it buy? What did it do? Yeah. Governments do not think like that. Governments do not think like that. And so to be able to point to someone else and say, something went wrong here, that's them. That could be worth $53 million to the federal government.
0: Right. Right. What's interesting is, is um, the government initially said five companies received contracts to work on the app. It later revealed the work involved 27 contracts to 23 unique companies. Is, is that is that normal in terms of, of this kind of contracting out?
5: You know, it's so difficult dependent to know. Like, uh, depending on what was invoked and why, and, you know, you've got so many different pieces involved in right. a pandemic, right? Like, this is part of, part of when I go back to the secrecy culture is, we don't if we if the government would just be more clear and transparent with what they were doing and why and they had good oversight some of these choices might make a lot of sense when you do this in a closed way it's unclear i mean for me if you need a specialist to do something and you don't have that information in house yeah you go contract and how many times should that happen mm, unclear but what we know here is that this got stood up pretty quickly and that brings us to a point that you're bringing up here like this wasn't open procurement this was not tendered in the way that you're supposed to tender a, a federal contract, which is you put it up and anybody can bid. This started from a place of closed contracting. And I think this brings us back to the point of, like, why are we not developing the internal capacity so that we can build this stuff if we need it? You bring people around. But it's like the government is basically, you know, giving up on that model. And it's too expensive to give up on the model. And it's way better for us in the long term to have this capacity in-house. So, you know, I think those are some of the pieces that sort of fall out of the procurement. Um, It was not done in the way that you should do it. When it's public money you absolutely have to have a fairness element to a public tender. And in this case, these are companies that were apparently already close to government. So that's mm. bad. Just That's just standard bad for procurement. Right.
0: That's problematic. Now, we, we've got a situation where Arrive Can has now basically replaced the old e-declaration app, an app that, that seemed far less problematic, far less costly. Uh, so Arrive Can seemingly is going to now fill that void and remain a permanent fixture. Do, do we... Do we need to address that? I mean, what, what do we need to do moving forward here?
5: Well, in this instance, we know that, that um, the budget goes into fall of next year for its development. So we know that this, you know, the intention here is to try to move this into the, as you'll hear, that be called border modernization. Um, And if you look at airports, and this puts us again in historical perspective, airports are really a place where so much of a market is developed for technology. You'll notice over the years, right, like you go from the metal detector to the body scanner, you got the kiosks, you got the facial, you know, biometrics. Um, So there's really this cultural enthusiasm just invest heavily and constantly in technology particularly um, in relation to border modernization and why this is interesting is that for some people and this gets to your question for some people they're much happier to fill out this app than to do the card on the airplane they're happy to take this work into their home or into their cell phone i have found lots of people who like this app so for them my concern is we need better governance we need better oversight we need to understand how this works but for people who don't want to go down this road, it's always about investing in the sort of redundancy where it's like some people were never, this is why the mandatoriness was such a problem. People were scared to travel because they didn't know how this worked. They didn't have access. They you know, didn't feel comfortable. They didn't understand what, why and you know, how this all worked. So I think what we need to pay attention to in the longer term is how do we make sure that a public service, which is what it is when you're going through CBSA, comfortable for everybody you know like yes for some of us you go ahead and you're comfortable and you understand and data management and all your privacy stuff cool like if you're comfortable that's fine but you also have to remember there's there's a set of us that may want a different option and we need to not leave people behind there and I think in the future I think we all can generally culturally understand Having tons of data, you know, all over the place and not having a good handle on how the government uses it, shares, this, you know, shares it within itself, shares it with contractors, shares it outside, that's been a growing awareness of that risk. So I think we, we really need to advocate for alternatives. Like, keep, 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 you know, even if it's inefficient, keep the card, keep the kiosk, keep the alternatives there. We can't build this whole thing around, you know, the people who are comfortable with the cell phone app. Like that's not how a good public service is developed. So I think we need to hold the CBSA, the Canada Border Services Agency, accountable, that these places have to be comfortable for everybody. Yeah. And it's going to take a while, and it's not everybody on an app. You know, That's not the future here.
0: Indeed. Some important points. we got to leave it there, Bianca. Appreciate the insight on all of this. Thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon.
5: Thanks for having me. Bye. Have all a good best.
0: one. Uh, that's uh, digital uh, privacy expert Bianca Wiley, a partner at Digital Public. Her thoughts on some of the... Problematic aspects of how Arrive Can came to be, uh, lack of transparency around all of this, and then obviously the cost. So fifty-four million dollars and counting we've spent on this app. By contrast, remember the federal government's COVID Alert app uh, that came in at a final price like around twenty million, which is still a big number. Now, the public safety minister says Arrive Can was an essential tool. He says it's an investment that will carry forward for those who want to use it. What's interesting, the Globe and Mail reached out to a number of experts in this field. Uh, Fad Ananta, an investor at Roach Capital, who has previously held senior product lead position at Snapchat and Spotify, says he can't understand how Arrive can cost more than $54 million. He said in his experience, building it out for a major corporate client would cost no more than about $1.5 million, and developers would celebrate landing a contract that size. It's outrageous, he says. In my view, I think they got fleeced. Uh, Applied Digital CEO, Gautam Lohia, who has built numerous apps, that his company has created cl- complex software for global organization with all-in costs in the seven to low eight-figure range for a product comparable to ArriveCAN. He says, I've used it many times, and it's not complex. Fifty-four million dollars over two and a half years is excessive. Richard Hyatt, an entrepreneur who has founded several tech companies, is CEO of Candor, which facilita- facilitates the use of QR codes described the ArriveCAN app as horrible, called for a review into why the cost climbed so high. He says it doesn't make sense. And on and on it goes. So even though ArriveCAN is no longer mandatory, uh, questions abound about how it came to be, who designed it, who built it, who owns the code, and, of course, why it cost as much as it did. Well, look, I, I think there was a consensus in early 2020 that we're entering an emergency kind of situation and it required an emergency kind of response. So there was, broadly speaking, a, a consensus uh, that, that emergency spending by government was warranted. We saw it at the federal level. We saw it at the provincial level. We saw it in other countries. But that doesn't automatically justify any and all spending. And so it's worth asking the question, was All of it justified. The response arguably was the shift toward a more emergency pandemic response and supports for households, for businesses, the economy. All of that was, I think, justified and warranted. But again, that's not a blanket vindication of every uh, financial and fiscal decision governments made. Today, as we struggle with inflation, partially resulting from uh, the amount of spending we saw in 2020 and into 2021, uh, it's also, I think, relevant in asking the question, was all of that necessary? So, a new report out today from the Fraser Institute uh, making the case that the federal government increased spending far beyond what was necessary to target COVID. Joining us to talk about uh, this paper is its author, Livio Di Matteo, professor of economics at Lakehead University, senior fellow with the Fraser Institute, fraserinstitute.org. The paper Storm Without End, the fiscal impact of COVID 19 on Canada and the provinces. Livio, great to have you with us. You're welcome to the program.
6: Good afternoon, Rob.
0: So let's ask the question how we distinguish, because it seems inherently subjective, spending that was necessary and justifiable and spending that was not.
6: Well, that's a very good question. Um, I think nobody uh, denies the fact that the federal government, in particular, uh, needed to address uh, the pandemic. And one can even be charitable and argue that, given the uncertainty of the time, one is liable to probably, you know, err on the side of caution in terms of the spending. So, you know, if you look at the spending, you know, uh, the two years in which the um, pandemic seems to have raged the most. Uh, the combined deficit at the federal level has been close to $200 billion. If you look at what was spent on the Canada emergency response benefits and the uh, sort of successors, the recovery benefit, the recovery sickness benefit, and the recovery caregiver benefit, as well as also the emergency rent subsidies and wage subsidies to business, over about a two-year period of the pandemic, those programs uh, totaled uh, probably close to $200 billion. And the deficits over that period were probably together close to $400 billion. Mm. Then there's also the health spending. Uh, the federal health supports were about another $40 billion. So you're looking at about 60% of the deficit that was incurred uh, could be sort of directly attributed uh, to the response to the pandemic. I mean, we can quibble if the response itself was more than what was needed, but even, you know, giving the benefit of the doubt, you still seem to have an awful lot of the deficit that does not seem to be accounted for by the pandemic spending.
0: So what do we attribute that to? Where where did this additional spending go?
6: Well, I I suppose if I was the government, I would argue that, you know, revenues had declined. So that's part of the reason the deficit was larger than expected. Sure. the federal government's revenues in the end did not collapse. I mean, in the first year of the pandemic, they were down about 5%. But uh, moving into the, the second year, uh, they were up quite dramatically. Uh, if you look at what else was being spent on, uh, essentially old age security was increased, uh, child benefit was increased, GSE tax credits went up. Uh, there's new programs that have been announced and new types of infrastructure spending. So there was a lot of additional spending. And it's all still, I mean, uh, if you want to think about it, it's all still in in the works. I I mean, this report itself uh, is interesting in that, uh, particularly at the provincial level, the numbers have changed quite a bit uh, over the last uh, few months. Uh, I mean, the the estimates that were being used for parts of this report for, say, 21-22 and 22-23, as the provincial public accounts have come out, uh, there's going to be quite uh, important modifications on the numbers, too. I mean, the classic example was Ontario, which for twenty-one twenty-two uh, was expecting a deficit of $30 billion, and uh, it seems to have finished off with a surplus of $2 billion.
0: Right. It was interesting. I mean, even the federal government was running a surplus, I think, in the first quarter of this year. I mean, yeah, Alberta's back into,
6: is, you know? That's correct. The federal government is starting to run surpluses also, and so one can expect... Uh, a pretty large uh, modification of some of these numbers over the next year or two, as the full public accounts come out, etc.
0: But has spending returned to a more kind of normal range?
6: Uh, I, I wouldn't call it that. In, in a sense, that if you the best base year to compare it to is probably 2019-20. and so that was sort of the year just before the pandemic or the first three months. And if you compare the estimated spending that is going to that has been forecast by the federal government circa 2223, and compare it to 2019 20 it's still going to be up 27 percent so i mean spending has come down i mean we went from about 370 billion in 2019 20 to about 644 uh it's down to about 508 for 21 22 but even that's going to probably change and it was forecast at 470 billion for 2022, 23. So if you just compare those two numbers, uh, the 370 and the 470, it's about 27 percent higher. Which means federal spending, once you've sort of factored out that COVID bump, has grown at about nine percent a year, which is you know well uh, in excess even of inflation, I suppose.
0: What's the downside of this? Because I don't think we can look at federal spending as without consequence. And even if the federal government felt that they needed to err on the side of excess spending. That, that does come with consequences. What were the consequences here?
6: Well, the consequences down the road is we've added uh, substantially to the federal debt. I mean, the federal debt-to-GDP ratio has gone from about 33% to just under 50% over the course of the pandemic. And as interest rates uh, rise, as they are invariably rising in world money markets, uh, it will become more expensive to service the debt. It's true that a lot of that has been locked in at uh, historically low rates and there is a turnover of debt. But over time, uh, if we continue running deficits and as debt does turn over, uh, the debt servicing costs uh, will rise and that will cloud out other government spending.
0: What about inflation? Do you, do you believe that that, that, um, that spending has contributed in part to the inflation we're dealing with today? And what, in what context should we view some of those decisions?
6: Well, I think inflation has been fairly complex. It's been a function of a number of things. It's been a function of relatively loose monetary policy and loose interest rates and borrowing at the individual level. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been a function of you know, federal spending in terms of a lot of money was funneled into uh, people's hands through all the various income supports and there was nothing to spend on it for a while and it led to a big surge. And then, of course, there has been the supply chain disruption of the pandemic and most recently the war in the Ukraine. So... I mean, it's not the only factor, but it has been a factor, I think.
0: Very interesting. Well, this paper, it's up at uh, FraserInstitute.org. Professor Di Matteo, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it.
6: My pleasure. Have a great day.
0: You as well. Uh, that's Livio DiMatteo, professor of economics at Lakehead, uh, Lakehead University, uh, senior fellow with the Fraser Institute and author of this report, Storm Without End, the Economic and Fiscal Impact of COVID in Canada. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.